Well, we're uh, going to continue with a time of teaching at this moment. If you want to grab Bibles, we'll be in John 13. Uh, if you didn't bring one, it's on page 900, nice and easy. Or you can find it. I'll also have it up here as we go. Um, uh, I heard uh, a really wise man say this past weekend that we are sin-making machines. And I think he's right, uh, but this morning as I was driving in, I, I realized I was thinking about how we are sin-making machines, and that sort of describes a lot of our brokenness as human beings, but we're also meaning-making machines, aren't we? We are always looking for meaning. You're driving down the road, and you hear the song, and you're like, oh, that's just for me. Like, all of the universe stops so you could hear one song. But we sense that or feel that. Like, we, we create meaning, and that's just... I think just such an interesting thought. Um, and so we, we, we're starting kind of a new series. We're starting a new series today, of all days, uh, beginning to talk about uh, Jesus as he begins his most difficult trial, as he begins to walk towards the cross. And it's hard to think about anything else today, obviously, than, than the, this virus and this, this trial, this tribulation. But it has reminded us of the fragility of life. It's reminded us of how quickly things change. It's reminded of us of our need. An ancient Christian holiday began a few weeks back called Lent. And Lent is a time that is meant to remind Christians that we both came from dust and to dust we will return again. And the hope of our life is bore up in more than just our ability to create enough drugs to keep us alive. But our hope in life is God breathing life again into the dead dirt that will bring us life again. It reminds us, this whole thing has reminded us that we are mortal, that we are fragile, that the world is easily overcomes us. So that so, so much so that you like wake up the next morning and there's no toilet paper and portage, right? We did not anticipate this last Sunday, did we? But here it is. <laughs> here it is. Life comes at you fast and hard, but brothers and sisters, we are keepers of the word. This is not news to us. This is something that the scriptures told you from page one, and they remind you it won't be finished till page 1,000, whatever it is, right? It's not done until Jesus shows up. And so we're, we're told again and again in Scripture, especially in this section of Scripture, this series we're supposed to be beginning, about the trials of life and what to do in the face of them, how to have hope and maintain it, because as John tells us, Jesus says in 14.1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I go there to prepare a place for you. I wrote this before the toilet paper shortage happened. <laughs> I swear to you, I did. <laughs> I heard a wise man say the other day, you ever noticed in this text, uh, he was talking about this, he said, um, he was 90, I got to listen to him speak, he was 90 years old, been walking with Jesus all this time, civil rights leader, and he said it was until he was 60 that he realized that his, all of his work was still him putting planks in his house in heaven. And he said, it wasn't until 60 that I turned around and realized, oh my goodness, isn't it interesting that Jesus says, I am going so that I may build, and you are waiting to receive. What do you build? Jesus says, I build. 
He continues on a few verses later, and he reminds them, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it is come. When you will be scattered each to his own home and leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in you, that you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What, a, what an interesting verse. Again, I wrote this, again, this is all planned before, shortages, but I couldn't help but be struck by this. We're about to be scattered, each to our own home, aren't we, very much? And Jesus is talking, of course, he's talking about the disciples scattering as, as he goes into his time of trial. But what's interesting in this moment is that Jesus is describing his hour of need, his hour of trial. And he says that when my hour has come, all of my friends will leave me. You know, I was taught as a child that when Jesus was on the cross, God looked away. I don't see that in the Bible. Because Jesus says here, in my hour of deepest trial and darkness, when everyone else has left me and all lights have gone out, the Lord is with me. Now, why does he tell us that as he is about to enter into his time of trial? Here he is comforting the disciples because he knows that when he is struck and he is taken, they will be worried, concerned, paranoid, fearful, confused, and he wants them to remember that when he was alone, he wasn't alone. So when they are alone, they know they're not alone. He is drawing them to see the hope that he is making for them. So that they can have hope when the hour is dark. Jesus can be really strange. (laughs) Very confusing, hard to understand. But here it's clear as crystal. Why am I telling you these things? I am telling you these things so that you can have shalom. Right? Peace, not just peace of mind, but peace of wholeness. Like the anxiety, the fear that all of it would go. I am telling you these things so that when you are most afraid, you have a rock to cling to. You have hope. And we're living in times like now where we see that hope most needed. And we're a few weeks away from Resurrection Sunday, so we're focusing on, that's why we call this the greatest hits, we're focusing on kind of the last things that Jesus says before his death. And John, uh, in his gospel, does something very interesting. In 13, the chapter 13, he opens up and he kind of gives us the Last Supper sequence. And then in 15, 16, and 17, he gives us these teachings that Jesus has. And then in 18, they're in the garden. So he gives us kind of this nice little compact section of the last things that Jesus had to say to his disciples before everything went dark, which tells us something really important. This might really, really matter. This might be really important for us to pay attention to because these are Jesus' last words to his disciples before the crucifixion, before all of this happens. Now, we're tempted to treat all of these things, and I I sort of have, in the past, even treated them as separate uh, instances or separate topics, like a dictionary, encyclopedia of theology, as though Jesus wants to talk talk about this issue, and now he's going to move on to this issue, and now he's going to move on to this issue, and now he's going to move... No, no, no. This is all one cohesive unit where Jesus is trying to draw his disciples to understand good, deep, healing, and wholesome truths for those dark times. 
So in 13 then, what we get is not just a topic or just a sequence of Jesus, sort of what he's doing with his disciples in the Last Supper. We are getting the foundational principles for everything else that is going to follow Which means that when Jesus speaks in 13, he is laying the groundwork for the hope we have when he says, I am going to prepare a place for you. So if you misunderstand what he is saying in 13, the the ground that he's trying to lay, the cornerstone he's trying to set up, you will miss everything else. And your building, your house, your theology, your worldview will be askew. You follow me? This is why the Bible talks about Jesus being the cornerstone. Because if you mess up those lines, everything kind of goes crooked and sideways and might fall over. Here it is, 13. This is the chapter where Jesus lays out everything. Now, uh, there's 38 verses here. (laughs) So we aren't going to go through all of that. But I want to draw you into the big picture. So I want to lay out the kind of the outline of the chapter. Because if you catch a glimpse of the big picture, I really believe the small picture will make plenty of sense to you as well. Does that make sense? You, you with me? So, so here we go. He starts off, Jesus starts off in the 13, 20, 1 through 20, we get this image, this story of Jesus uh, demonstrating his service by washing the disciples' feet. So he gets on his knees, he washes the disciples' feet. The next section, 13, 21 through 30, Jesus predicts Judas's betrayal. Then in 13, 31 through 35, Jesus gives the disciples a new commandment. And that commandment is, church, really complicated. 13, 36 through 38, the next section, he predicts Peter's betrayal. Then in 14, you remember we've already read that, he, he, he talks about, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, that where I am there you may also be all that stuff. I, I hope you see, do you see what's happening here? Jesus starts by getting on his knees and washing the feet of all of the people who are about to desert him, especially the two that are about to betray him. You can see, like, you, you see this, right? The grace that is evident Here, just in the shape of how John is trying to tell us the story, Jesus stops and serves and says, and you're going to betray me. Jesus stops and says, I want you all to love one another, and you're going to betray me. Do you sense the overwhelming grace of God in this one crystalline moment? The overwhelming grace of Jesus upon these people who are about to abandon and betray him. And if God washes the feet of his betrayers and can say to those who would stab him in the back, I love you, how much more love does he have for you? You ever wondered if God loves you? I hope this outline helps you see the truth. Beloved, please understand this. How many of you, how many of any of us, me included, would be willing to wash the feet of the guy at work who's going to stab you in the back the next day? You know he's going to snake your promotion. He's going to snake the accolades. He's going to snake the new office. He's going to take everything. You're going to still wash his feet or her feet or whatever your equivalent of that is. No, of course not. And so we see the savagery of the love of Jesus, the humiliation that he is demonstrating before us. Look at the text together. Let's read it 
let's look at it together. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking the towel, tied it around his waist, poured the water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, now we're getting a, a bunch of details right out of the gate here, especially in verse 3 here. John is trying to draw a full picture of the glory of Jesus Christ. So what do we have here? We have Jesus who is complete in his authority over everything. Every power kneels to Jesus. Jesus kneels to nothing. That he is divinely sent from God. And that he knows that he is divinely going back to God. Which is another way of saying that Jesus is a king. That he is a divinely sent prophet. And that as Hebrews describes it, he is the priest going back to God to intercede for us. And this, this Christ, this Messiah, this king, this prophet... This priest, this God, gets on his knees and washes poop from between the disciples' toes. Now, you, you, you might not have noticed the significance of this. Uh, he, rose, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Now, do you understand the significance of that? What does that mean? Basically, he got naked and tied a towel around his waist, maybe underwear or something like that. Why do you do that? Because you keep slaves in their place. This is not servanthood. This is slavery. The slave comes in the house and he does not wear or she does not wear outer garments. They are degraded and brought low. They don't get clothes like everyone else gets clothes because if they did, they might get it in their heads that they're equal to you. So you take them and you belittle them and degrade them down to nothing. Jesus is taking the form of the slave. If you've been in church for a long period of time, like I have, you know the danger of the word retreat. Christian retreat. Conventions are fine. Conferences are fine. Retreats are dangerous. Because in retreats, somebody gets it into their disgusting little head that we should do a foot washing service. Right? Christians are very weird like this. It's in the Bible. We have to do it. Have you ever done, has anybody ever done this? Foot washing services? Yeah, everybody who's gone to church camp knows what I'm talking about here. Some of you have dodged it. Lucky you. But we would have to do it, and, and, and we're not cleaning any. There's sh- you take your shoes and your socks off, and you wash feet. I still thought that was nasty. And here Jesus is submitting himself in humiliation, not only in the sense that it's yucky, but in the sense that he is taking on the most defaced place he could. He gets on his knees and becomes their slave. And Peter is not having it. As we might not either, right? Because again, it's not just he's doing something gross. It's that he is taking the lowliest spot in the house, the person who you call in to put your feet on top of because you don't have a footrest. Jesus is doing this. And Peter says, what is going on here? His whole world is inverted. 
His whole world is inverted in this moment, and he is shocked by it. And so he says, let's get there. Simon Peter shows up, and he says, are you going to wash my feet too? And Jesus answers him, what I'm doing, you don't understand, no kidding. (laughs) But afterward, you will understand. And Peter says to him, you'll never wash my feet. I'll never let you be my slave. God, you will never serve me. I will always serve you. But then notice what Jesus says next, because it's so strange. He says, if you don't let me wash you, you don't have a place in my house. If you don't let me wash your feet, if you don't let me be your slave, you go. I mean, that's... I mean, it's like zero to 60, right? It's like, cut the guy a break. I mean, he is rattling every perception. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks back. Remember the Maccabees? We're waiting for Jesus to be the hammer. We're waiting for Jesus to take the throne. We're waiting for Jesus to pick up the sword, to call his armies together, to take Jerusalem, to submit all of his enemies, to raise them up and make God the strongest in the land, to make Israel great again. And then what does he do? gets on his knees and plays slave to Peter. And Peter says, no. And Jesus says, you must. I have been in church my whole life. And I have seen a billion different dividing lines that we create between ourselves. I've seen them say, you're not a Christian because you don't read the King James Bible, because you don't speak in tongues, because you weren't baptized in the right order or by the right name or in the right mode, because you don't have the right building or the right name on your badge. we, We make all kinds of ways of cutting ourselves off and saying, I am a better Christian than you, and I'm not even really sure if you are a Christian. But isn't it interesting that here, the dividing line is service. And he begins with this, the inversion, that you must understand that first God comes to serve you. That's what it means when it, said, when it says we love because God first loved us. We caught a glimpse of God on his knees being our slave, and we said, this cannot stand. <laughs> we must respond and become like him. Because if we don't become like him, we have no place in him. Jesus is just demonstrating love because he knows love is a squishy word, and any chance any human can get to make love apply to them and not someone else. We will take it. And so Jesus starts not with love, but with slavery, so that you could understand that love is not anything you want it to be. Love looks like this. Love looks like this. And it should so capture us with wonder that this is the real world. The real world, the real good, the real beauty, the real true is captured in this moment of absolute subjection and giving over to the needs and will of another so that other could recognize love and respond back. That there are this beautiful imagery of reciprocity and love between these two Two creatures, these two beings between God and humanity and then calling humans to recognize it for what it is and take it up as our own calling that we might be the lamp of God 
That we might be the light of the world. That people might see what love looks like, not in words, but in deeds. And now is a time when we can shine. Now is a time when we can make calls, when we can act. Now is a time when people are freaking out and losing their minds. And we can be firm and fixed because the rock didn't change. The world changes all the time, but the rock doesn't change. Jesus says, fix yourself on me. I'll see you through. And here he is calling Peter beyond himself. So far beyond himself that Peter doesn't feel like he can go that far. But when Jesus drops the line, this is where I'm going, Peter says, all right, man, wash me. And he is looking, God is looking for people who see how far he's pushing them, too far. If you ever look at God and you say, God, that's too far, you're on the right track. If you think, God, that's too much faith, you're on the right track. If you think, God, I shouldn't love that person, but you feel like you should, you're on the right track. God is always pulling us beyond ourselves. The place that you don't want to go is the place God is pulling you to. Because he knows that once he pulls you out of yourself, new redemption comes. New healing comes. New life comes. All right. That's it. Come on. (laughs) The thing that I notice that stands out to me about this whole sequence, just one last little bit, that's how we do it, internets, (laughs) is in verse 2 of chapter 13, where, 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 where John is sort of setting the stage for everything that's about to come. And he gives us first this detail about, about Judas Iscariot. The devil put it in Judas's heart to betray him. He brings, up, he brings up Judas like three more times in this sequence. Like, don't forget Judas was at the table. Yo, don't forget Judas was at the table. Hey, hey, remember Judas? He's got Satan in him. Jesus washed his feet too. <laughs> like, the reckless love of God is so present here. And it's not reckless to God because God can redeem everything, but it's reckless to us because we are so afraid that if we give too much, we won't have enough for ourselves. But that is why Jesus spoke to that woman at the well and says, if you knew who I was, you would, you would ask me and I would give you a spring that gives out living water. There is no end to hope, no end to love, no end to life when you find it in Jesus. There is no end to any of it. And you can do something as scandalous, foolish, reckless, and stupid as wash the feet of the one who will stab you in the back because God can heal that too. And because you have the same savage hope of Jesus that that person is also made in the image of God, also a lost son or daughter, also in need of the same healing that you have already been given, which is why you can take more wounds and more scars, why Jesus could take all of our beatings and all of our hate because he had already been healed. The healing allows you to take more and it allows you to be an agent of healing. Which is why God calls us and why John reminds us, don't forget, Judas was at the table too. And if Judas belongs at the table with Jesus, whoever you are and whatever you've done and where you've come from, you belong at the table with Jesus too. Let's pray.